This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Snook legend George Copeland, this week on The Real Guy Podcast. I caught some of the biggest snook that I caught in Fort Lauderdale. Caught a snook there that weighed 43 pounds. Fish hanging in the tackle store is the biggest one is George Beck's 5712. All these guys in this room have probably let go more records than the IGFA have ever even thought about documenting. And that's probably the truth. You, myself, a lot of the people that we talked about, they dedicated their lives to the sport of fishing that they loved. No matter how much money you have does not make you a better person solid mullet as far as you could see. What I've seen fishing and what Jeff has seen fishing, a lot of people will never see because it may never ever happen again. Run that dog. Definitely run that dog. (laughs) (laughs) Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy Podcast. So George, Tell me what you can remember about when I was a kid and I first met you. Well, I actually put carpet in your house, and uh, like I said, I can't remember if you were six or eight years old, but uh, I'd known your father, and uh, you. Know, and then I've watched throughout the years everything you've done fishing, and uh, we didn't really see each other much, and I couldn't even tell you how many times we have. But just like Jeff, if anybody asked me about him, I go, oh yeah, Jeff, he's a real good fisherman. He's a friend, yeah, Jeff, Jeff's a real good guy. If you go fishing with him, he's really neat. And some people would even ask me, is he like what he does on the run the dog thing? On the videos? And I said, that's Jeff promoting himself. I said, if you go fishing with Jeff, you're gonna meet a different Jeff than the Jeff that's promoting himself. Yeah, the, 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 the Lunker Dog, the character. Right, they didn't understand that, and they thought you were going to be like the videos, and we'd have to tell them, no, you got to go fishing with them. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, when um, uh, after, after I did the podcast with Andy Mill a couple of years ago, um, a lot of people reached out and said, you know, I never saw that side of Jeff. I always saw the, the YouTube side of Jeff. Right. And... The YouTube side, we were always gargarious and having fun and poking fun at people, but we caught the big fish mm-hmm. and we tried to make it entertaining so we would appeal to the younger generation. 
all the media that happened before um, YouTube, and especially the Lunker Dog series, was fabricated through magazines and these writers. And they dictated you know, who was the best and what they did, and they documented it. And one of the things we wanted to do with YouTube is show the world that there's a whole bunch of real guys, like normal dudes that are in love with fishing and do spectacular things, and you don't need some writer from some magazine or something to tell you that. That's true. That's for sure. There's so many guys that love for fishing is unbelievable. And we're fortunate we have a lot of people that actually grew up here in uh, Fort Lauderdale, Broward County area that have achieved really greatness in fishing. There's different boat captains today that uh, came in TNR Tackle when I first uh, started the TNR Tackle. Well, after I bought it, I didn't start it. But these guys were 12, 13, 14 years old, and now they're major boat captains. Right. And major boat captains all around the world, even including Hawaii. And um, <clears throat> did, you, did you, at the time when you were mentoring these, these young captains, did you ever think that the fishing industry would turn into what it's turned into and that guys would get the type of notoriety and, and call it fame? No, actually, I don't think you think that if you're a tackle store owner and the kid's 12, 13, 14 years old and coming in and buying fishing tackle, you might be thinking, well, he's going to grow up. And what's he going to do for a living? Is he going to be the uh, multimillionaire that uh, buys a $15,000 sport fish and needs it outfitted? Right. You know, so you you don't know. These are things that actually did happen so <laughs> you right. don't know well i i'm sure you understand the role that you played um in a lot of people's lives whether they're professional fishermen or recreational fishermen the tnr tackle story you see you started that in 1981 well the tackle store itself opened in 1957 and it was ray dye and tom wolf were the original owners and then they sold it, and I believe both of them have passed now. I know Ray went to the Keys and had a marina down there, and I know that Ray died, and I think Tom Wolf did too. But then it had another owner, Lou Potenza, and then Billy LaQuatra, and I actually bought it from Billy LaQuatra, and I've had it for the last 42 years. 42 years now. And... Do you know um, when they originally put TNR where it was, was that strategic because the pier was there? That was because of the pier, because back in the day, those got both of those two guys were pier fishermen. And uh, the pier, the best years the store ever had was when the pier was shut down <laughs> due to hurricanes or whatnot. So the pier didn't really have much to do with the business. Really? That's <laughs> interesting. Think it did, but... Uh, not not that much because most of our customers are offshore fishermen whether they're the uh, center consoles or the big sport fish well your uh your rods were definitely a topic on the piers when we were growing up well we built custom rods since the day one one of the best rod builders uh that ever lived was lee Cammon, and he was the first guy building rods at tnr tackle and then danny palmatier which anybody that knows much about custom rods is listening to this they'll know who i'm talking about because they were very famous 
And another guy that worked there that most people don't know is Randy Tao. And Randy Tao's signature series, Custom Rods, out of uh, Isla Mirada. Mm-hmm. Randy worked for me there, too. So Now, Randy was a Pompano kid, right? Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. I, remember, I remember... He played baseball at Wilt Manor's uh, field. That I do remember. Yeah. Randy's a few years older than me, but I always remember Randy because he was one of the best fishermen that would, you know, roll around town. And... Um, there's guys like Randy, guys like yourself, guys like Tommy Green. was the reason that we started the Real Guy podcast. And we made the term up, Real Guy. Because, as I was mentioning before, the way media used to work is media dictated who the professionals were. But if you were grew up in it, like you did, or like I did, yeah. then you knew that these weren't the real guys. These were the guys that were doing the TV shows and writing the articles and stuff, but they would get somebody like yourself to walk them through, mentor them, and to make sure that they got the coverage that they got. And then they never glorified the real guy. Right. The real guy was behind the scenes. They didn't even know who that was. Right. And that people, you know, people say, oh, well, social media is such a double-edged sword. And it is. Because it can really suck, and there's some things that really suck about it. But there's some things that are so great about it. And one of the greatest things that I've noticed with social media, uh, whether it be YouTube, whether it be you know the quick media like Instagram and Facebook, or long-term media like this, is now that we have the interview, now that we have the the the, the way to distribute interviews, is people actually under, are starting to really get a grip on what a real guy is who they are and that a lot of the stuff that they've been seeing over the years was a bunch of bullshit that was fed to them that's definitely true and today with the electronics that we have especially in the boating industry almost anybody could be a boat captain and know how to go from one place to the other right years ago you couldn't go into hell's bay out of Flamingo because you get lost and never come out. Now you can go wherever you want to go in there because the GPS will tell you how you went in and how to turn around and get out. So you can find where you were yesterday. You can uh, stop on a mark and hit your cursor and you know exactly what that mark is and you can go back and fish it again. And does that, put a, does that kind of put a, a bad taste in your mouth, the new technology and the GPS type stuff? Sometimes, yes. I, I did a uh, little bit of guiding in uh, Isla Morada for two different tarpon seasons for fly fishermen. And a lot of the areas that we would run and we would go through were not marked. And today, anybody can run through those areas if they have the right GPS coordinates or have gone through it once. Right. So it makes everything a total difference for right fishing today yeah no it, it a, a lot of the old timers you know it's um you know they get it but you can tell it's a thorn in their ass because you did it the hard way oh yeah you learned everything it's like uh even jeff uh, that works for me at tnr tackle and he's been with me for 27 28 years actually he's running the business i don't run the business anymore jeff does but he'll was always like you never take pictures of snook you never post snook pictures you never do anything to promote snook and i go well jeff if i did then where i wanted to fish i couldn't fish where i wanted to fish because somebody'd be there right. and that's basically gotten that way today 
is all the places that uh, I used to fish. A lot of times I can't fish. There's a specific bridge that I do like to fish, and I went there last year, and there was four people on the bridge, and I was like, oh, that's great. And I happened to drive back by just for some dumb reason just before it got light, and the guys left. And I was like, wow, pulled over and caught seven snook and seven mullet and <laughs> didn't have mullet, any more snook. mullet and got back in the car and left. <laughs> <laughs> how, many, um, how many days are you putting in now? Working or fishing? Fishing. Usually I get up early in the morning so usually I do fish quite a bit. I'll go take a look maybe for an hour. Sometimes I just throw a lure. Sometimes I try to catch a mullet. As Jeff and I were talking earlier, trying to catch a mullet in Broward County is a real good trick. And uh, depending on where you catch the mullet, you might not want to put your hand in the water to even uh, get the mullet because there's so much problem in our waterways. Yeah, the, the bacterial level in our waterways makes us paranoid at this point about touching the water. I was telling you earlier, I take bacterial soap with me on my trips. And when I know the water is not looking right, or if I have a cut on my hand, or whatever it may be, is bacterial soap is part of my tackle now. Yeah, and one of the places I used to always catch a few baits is Tarpon River. And Tarpon River, I've seen your post about the bacterial levels in Tarpon River. Right. And that was one of my go-to spots to catch the mullet. Right, right. And then the Hammershees Canal, and you know, a lot of times somebody go, oh, why would you even say where you're catching mullet? Well, there is no mullet to speak of in Hammershees Canal because it's had so many sewerage spills that you can't even count them. Right. And why you'd want to throw a cast net in there, put your hand in that water, even if you don't have any cuts, I'd be fearful of sticking my hand in there. Right. Now, the, um, when, we spoke, um, when we spoke earlier, um, I don't know, I, I, I reached out to you maybe a year ago or so, mm-hmm. and, um, or maybe longer than that because before COVID, and uh, we, I wanted to do the interview with you. And, um, of course, time took its toll, and then it, it took a little while, but you actually turned around and reached out to me And was that because of your concern for the the water quality? The water quality here in Broward County is so bad. And I follow anything Jeff puts on Facebook or puts up. And I'm very thankful that he's doing what he's doing, trying to promote this water problem that we have. Because he's one of the activists that's trying to do something. And if we don't have anybody trying, nothing's ever going to be done. And I grew up here, and uh, Tarpon River used to be full of mullet, and you could stand on 3rd Avenue Bridge when they built 3rd Avenue Bridge over Tarpon River, and you could about see the bottom. Today, if you could see the bottom, it's just brown muck, sludge, just absolute terrible-looking bottom in there. And having grown up here and seeing how bad everything has turned... You know, you you got to have some concern for is they are they ever going to do anything to try to turn this around? Right. And so far, it seems like they all turn their head and look the other way. 
let's build another condominium, let's build another condominium. The infrastructure certainly will hold that. Yeah. And, you know, anybody with any sense certainly knows that the infrastructure is not going to keep up with what we're building. Right. And what we've seen here in South Florida in the last 30 years um, is now happening to every small town all across the state. And there's a lot of podcasts um, and a lot of content that people want to do about the outdoors, about snook fishing, about tarpon fishing. And they want people to see and they glorify what's happening, but they want people to see that just the good parts. And only recently, say in the last three or four years, are there people that are actually compelled to show people that, hey, this isn't just all good. And what was all good is now changing. And it's a topic that needs to be spoken. And the more we do it, the more that it clicks in other people's heads. And I feel fortunate that I've been looking at the water since the 80s when I met you. Mm-hmm. I study it every day. I want to know everything about it. And there's only a few people out there that have done the same thing. So when I sit down in front of somebody like yourself, who studied it for 30 years more than I did, oh yeah, I really want your story you know, to, to be out there. One of the things, and this is kind of an interesting story, I grew up here when I was a kid. There was a tackle stall called Redmond's Tackle, and we used to save our lunch money. And she sold Rapala, not Rapala, excuse me, uh, Creek Chub Lures for 50 cents apiece. And we got 50 cents a day for lunch money for school, so we'd save it, and on Friday we'd buy five lures. And we'd walk or ride our bikes to Tarpon Bend. And... My mother worked till 7 o'clock, and she'd come pick us up at 7 o'clock. Now, me and my buddy would both have five lures. Now, if you didn't cast too far out at Tarpon Bend, you might catch a snook. But if you casted just a little further out, you'd hook a tarpon. So most of the times, we got over there at about 4.30, and by 5.30, we were sitting on the seawall twiddling our thumbs because we didn't have any more lures because the tarpon took them all away. (laughs) And as Jeff and I were talking earlier before we started this podcast, if you fish Tarpon Bend and you saw a tarpon roll in two or three days, that would be a lot. And we used to see hundreds and hundreds of tarpon rolling at Tarpon Bend right. every day. And, you know, that, um, the, the, as we talk about places like Tarpon Bend and the New River, you know, George, that was only seven, eight years ago when the place still had a shit still ton had of some fish. tarpon, yeah. So what's ever happened, and I'm going to blame it squarely on, on, on sewage in Fort Lauderdale, but the New River used to be, in my opinion, one of the best snook and tarpon spots in the whole state. And I would do trips to, say, Stewart or Port Charlotte or the Everglades or Flamingo. And then I would come home and I'd say, yeah, but if I want to catch a big tarpon, if I want to catch a big snook. Yeah, Fort Lauderdale was great. Right. I caught some of the biggest snook that I caught in Fort Lauderdale. I did catch some big fish in Palm Beach and in Stewart. But the old Sunrise Boulevard Bridge, I caught a snook there that weighed 43 pounds. And that was on 
IGFA certified scale, and it was also certified by the Florida Department of Agriculture. So that fish was uh, pretty solid. It was certified. <laughs> yeah, it was certified. <laughs> it was certified lunker. But uh, it's just amazing how destructive everything has been. There's another spot we used to call Little Florida. They call it Sailboat Bend. Mm -hmm. And that had hundreds of tarpon all the time. And I've looked at that, oh, I don't know, maybe 50 times in the last few years and haven't ever seen a tarpon roll there. Right. Little Florida, um, the first 100-pounder I ever caught was right at Little Florida and took a little 15-foot whaler up the creek, sat there on the <laughs> seawall, and I think I was a dead mullet. And <laughs> sure enough, that was the, uh, I don't want to say it was probably like 1982, 1983. And eh, fish was probably 140 pounds or whatever. We killed the son of a bitch yeah. and put it in the Met tournament. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as a junior, did pretty well. Oh, yeah, he probably won <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the uh, things like the Met tournament that used to be such a, a, a great part of our community they've faded well the met tournament actually isn't anymore right uh, one of my good friends and probably probably the best guide in florida his name was ralph delf mm -hmm. and ralph had uh, 298 world records to his credit and actually he had two others that igfa didn't allow that my son Christopher caught some reason with the scale at the marina there. So he would have had 300, which was his goal. And it's a shame that uh, whatever IGFA did, that they didn't allow those two records. Right. Because then he would have had 300. Well, you know, um, one of the reasons, um, one of the reasons that I never went after records is because I'd go down to the tackle shop or go down to Tommy's Tackle Shop or Beach Bait and Tackle, and I would hear all the debate and argument that went on about these records. And then I think to, I would think to myself, all these guys in this room have probably let go more records than the IGFA have ever even thought about documenting. And that's probably the truth. There's an awful lot of uh, world records that were caught that were never kept. Uh, when I brought up Ralph, that was... He uh, guided the master angler in the Met probably more than anybody else. And that's how he started getting the world records because you had to weigh these fish for the Met tournament. So when he brought something in, he'd look at IGFA's book and he'd enter it in IGFA if it was a record. Mm -hmm. And like what Jeff just said, there's people that have probably beaten a lot of the records that are there today and they just never entered it never entered it and they sit back and they realize you know that i'm not saying the igf is igfa is bullshit but there's two sides of the coin when it comes to records and and great great fishermen now the um the big thing the guys like you taught me uh growing up here on the southeast coast of florida is the difference between a snook and a snook that's over 30 pounds. When I would go to your tackle shop, or I would go to Tommy's tackle shop, or I'd go to Bill Boyd's, or I, the conversation always was, was he 30 pounds? Now today's day and age, these, 40 kids, inches. these kids talk about 40 inches. And on the Real Guide Network, we always make fun, especially the West Coasters, because you know 
we never even considered a, a certified lunker a snook unless he beat 30 pounds right yeah that was always the standard even when i was a kid growing up i can remember 12 years old and how big was the snook uh, i caught a snook uh i think i was 14 because i remember i had to ride my bicycle to uh where I went fishing and I had to ride the bicycle with the snook hanging on the handlebar to weigh it at Boyd's Tackle. And it only weighed 28 and I was so disappointed because I thought I had the 30 pounder <laughs> and it weighed 28. I was like, oh, I'm doing it. <laughs> now the, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if you ever heard this, uh, this story, but years ago I had a, a bar on Fort Lauderdale Beach, right across the street from Shooters. You probably remember it as uh, Utah's My Second Home. And uh, when we bought it, um, we had a porch outside. And back then I would fish more for myself and I'd guide a little bit on the big boats and that kind of stuff as a mate. But I would, I would go to work, um, you know, maybe 10 o'clock at night after I got done fishing. And back then, we'd kill the biggest snook that we caught for the night and throw them in the back of the truck. And, it's, you know, we took home and ate it. Yeah. And I would pull up to the bar um, on my way back from fishing. And I had a guy that worked there named Jeff. Great dude. Big old black guy, all gold teeth. Always had something <laughs> fun to say. And the tourists would ask him, oh, what kind of fish is that? And he'd look in the truck, and they'd all be looking in the truck, and he'd say, oh, those are lunkers, dog. Lunkers. <laughs> yeah. So then when I had to name the, the guide business, we named yeah, it after that, Lunker Dog. Yeah, and, well. that, and that was because guys like you um, set the standard. Say, okay, 30 pounds and up. That's a real snook. And today's standard, the 40-inch uh, club. Yeah. Do you, do you know where that came from? I honestly don't. You know, it's funny because, you know, all the kids today are 40 inches, 40 inches, 40 inches. In fact, uh, my uh, youngest son's boss. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Uh, we actually took him fishing this past summer, and the biggest snook he's ever caught was maybe four or five pounds. And Christopher told him, said, I'm not going to say for sure. He said, but I think you're going to get in the 40-inch club. <laughs> and his boss did. He caught a 40-incher. But the 40-incher with the tail pinched, you know, that could be a 20-pound snook or a 22-pound snook, depending on how right. thick it is. And most people don't get that. A 40-inch snook is not a big snook. Well, a 40-inch snook in Flamingo, I would say, on average, would be around 17 pounds. Yep. Where a 40-inch snook at Commercial Bridge could go 24 pounds yeah and it's both of them are 40 inch fish and that's why we've always made fun of the west coasters and called their snooks like half lady fish and yeah you know yeah. And, and it's fun to go back and forth but i didn't do you know dave parmelo sure the mad snooker oh definitely i fished with dave quite a few times now dave um through social media 
I immediately realized that Dave was a real guy. Oh, yeah. And we used to, at the beginning of social media, we would spar back and forth, you know, who catch the biggest snook and do the video and do that kind of thing, and whether the West Coast or the East Coast was better. And he was beautiful because he would play right along with it. Oh, yeah. So when we started the podcast series, I called up uh, Dave and I asked him to be on the podcast, and he told me about the 40-inch snook club. And he, like us, grew up with the mindset of a 30-pounder was right. a certified fish and above. Yep. So what he would do is he would guide over in the Sarasota area, and he'd take these guys out from, you know, Wisconsin or whatever, and they'd have a great day. And if they got a 40-inch snook, Dave would make a huge deal about it. Like, oh, that's beautiful. You're in the 40-inch club. And then you give him a little pin. Yeah, he still does was, today. And he still does it today. <laughs> and when we did that interview, I had no clue that that's where that whole 40-inch thing came from. And now I think about all the kids on the piers and all the kids that are running around on their bikes that are into fishing, and they're like, 40-inch snook, 40-inch snook. And I'm like, that's horseshit. They should have learned from George. It should have been a 30-pound snook is what they should be going for. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's interesting that even the uh, young guy that works for us at TNR, he's probably caught over 30 snook this month. Well, they go and throw jigs all over the place. They might be in Miami. They might be in uh, Fort Pierce. They might be anywhere. And they're 40-inch, 40-inch, 40-inch. And uh, one of the guys that used to bridge fish, I told him, I said, you got a bridge net? He goes, yeah. I said, well, if you got the snook and the bridge net, put the scale on one side and let the other side down and weigh the bridge net with the snook in it and then weigh the bridge net afterwards and you'll know how big he is. And he goes, yeah, he said, I thought I'd caught some 30-pounders till I started doing that. And I found out my 30-pounders were 26 and 27. Right, right, right. And the significance of getting a 30-pound snook, um, you know, people should pat themselves on the back when when that happens because it's not something that like they so candidly throw around it's not like something that you know everybody can do whenever they want i mean you got to put in some time energy and oh. commit yourself Ooh, yeah you spend a lot of time doing that and it's like uh, i think we lost the thing earlier where i said tommy green had 192 snook one year and didn't have a 30 pounder and that's a lot of fish. And when we're talking about 192, I'm talking about 192 that were probably over 15 pounds. Right, 192 big snook. We didn't even count a fish, and we still don't count fish that are not 15 pounds plus. Last year, uh, my son Christopher and I caught 292. This year, we caught 288. And out of all of those fish... We did not kill one. We let every one of those fish go. So we're being very conservative with the snook that we catch is not taking them. And not that you'd want to take one and eat it out of uh, Broward County unless you caught it on a pier. And even then, it might have just swam out of the canal system. You don't know. Right, 50-50 at best. (laughs) Yeah. And that's a, you know, one of the most asked questions when I take people fishing is they ask me, they say, well, do you eat, you know, any fish? And I says, not in here. Right. And they're like, really? Right. And I'm like, really? I said, yeah. I wouldn't eat a fish out of here. Oh. Yeah. And, um, you know, to think that that's the, the state we're in, in today's day and age is pretty friggin' crazy considering that beautiful water and all those fish and waves and 
things that you could see for the divers. That's what built South Florida. Right. And now what we have is hard to believe. Uh, you posted something uh, last week on uh, Los Olas Boulevard. I happened to look, and I don't think it was you that took the picture because it was off the bridge. And there's another spill. And I go, well, there you go again. And I said, I guess I'm not going down there and look for a mullet. <laughs> right. I know we're not. Mm-hmm. I know we're not to go. And um, you know, it's 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 the whole state um, here in in uh, Broward and Dade. We've been doing it more viciously than say the rest of the state has been for a long time and it's really driving me crazy because some of the small towns like my my dad moved to punta gorda and punta gorda is a beautiful area beautiful area it reminded me of old fort lauderdale um but i can see it happening there now and it bothers me so much that the politicians don't get it the people that move into the state don't get it. The kids aren't taught what Florida should be as opposed to what it is now. And what I'm finding is, is I'm finding that there's a lot of real guys, and especially older people, that now feel compelled to make sure people know the story. Like I said, I was talking to Steve Cantner on my way over here, and he's out of your school. Steve and I were uh, friends since we were 12 years old, so I've known Steve a long, long time, and he's a real good fisherman, and he's concerned, just like Jeff and I, about what's going on with our waters. You know, where we fished when we were younger, and not that long ago, like Jeff was saying, seven, eight years ago. Seven, eight years ago, there was... Still plenty of mullet to catch. He, Jeff used to put a thing on, can you get a dozen? That's right. And uh, I'd throw the cast net, and I'd get 14 in one throw in the cast net, and I'd go, hey, Jeff, I got a dozen, even <laughs> though he wasn't with me. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, talk, talk to me a little bit about, um, you were telling me one of your sons is just really, really into fishing. Um, they both are. Uh, my older son works so much now, he doesn't have much time to fish. But uh, the last probably two months, he started getting up early in the morning and going with me. And uh, he actually was with me the one morning last year when I caught the fish that was 37 pounds. And he was pulling it up in the bridge net. And he goes, do you want to help me pull this thing up? And I go, what do you mean just pull that thing up? He goes, this thing is big. (laughs) And I didn't realize it was quite as big as it was. But... uh, he started fishing again. My younger son has fished with me, oh gosh, probably since he was eight years old. And he loves to fish. And he would not purposely kill a fish to eat it no matter what. Right. I mean, he he's let 60-pound cobias go, 30-pound cobias go. He just, and snook, he, they're his love. And... You couldn't talk him into killing a snook. I don't care. Right. You could catch it out on the beach uh, five miles from any inlet, and it would be as clean as clean, and he go, nope, we're letting him go. Right. Why, why, do you feel, why do you feel that the inshore fishermen here in Florida are so passionate about snook as opposed to a lot of the other fish? Like, I love, I love all the sport fish that, that are 
available to us. Yeah, I do too. I like. I think that my two favorite fish have always been the snook and the tarpon because they were available inshore. And growing up, I could fish with them with I was a kid without even having a car. And you didn't have to have a boat or a lot of money to go fish for them. And it's like, if you're a blue marlin fisherman, your pockets better be pretty loaded because that's spending a lot of money. Now, going and catching a sailfish, you can go catch a sailfish in a 16, 17-foot skiff if the weather's right and not spend a ton of money on fuel. So that fishing is possible. And just like uh, Jeff just said, I like to fish for anything. I've gone out and bottom fished and caught snappers and groupers and stuff like that. I even enjoy catching Jack Crevel, and I think Jack Crevel are very underestimated. But I think a lot of people, the reason they don't like jacks is trying to unhook them. Trying to unhook them where they eat all your snook baits. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but the thing is, it's, you catch a jack, and unless you grab him right behind his gills, he's kicking and kicking and kicking and kicking, and you're trying to get the hook out and stepping on him and trying to not get the hook in your foot or whatever if you got a plug. And we catch a lot of them on chuggers where you have two treble hooks and one flopping around and the other's in his mouth and you're trying to right. not get uh, one in your hand. Well, yeah, the jack is always a funny story. And, and just last night, I take this guy out from Boston. And uh, he was a good fisherman, you know, did bluefin and did all the stuff that you could catch up there, the stripers and all that. But he'd never caught a tarpon. He'd never caught a snook and he never caught a jack crevel. Well, we caught all the species last night. Oh, great. Got three good tarpon, uh, two decent snooks, and a few jack crevels. So this morning... He texted me to thank me. Say, hey, you know, we had a great time. Glad, you know, it all worked out. And the guy actually listened to Andy Mills' podcast. That's how he found me. And um, I, I texted back. I said, you guys were great out there. I says, send me, send me your most favorite picture from last night. And you know which one he sent me? He caught about a 15-pound jack, a nice chunky jack. And, you know, the bridge is behind him and everything looks cool. And him not being a jack snob yeah he thought that jack was his best Great. catch of the night yeah three tarpon two snooks and, and some jacks and he liked the big jack he yeah. loved it you know and um yeah jacks have always got a uh, got the short end of the stick but they kept all of us in the game for so many years um at any given point i could walk down to the seawall throw a czar spook as far as i could reel that thing in and catch a jack oh sure Especially where you grew up, around the Tarpon Bend area. I remember kid throwing Zara spooks, and we wouldn't even put the uh, treble hooks on them. We just like to watch the jack beat them up at daybreak in the morning. Do you realize that um, in the old days, around Los Olos Boulevard, if yourself, Steve Kantner, maybe Randy, he was a little much younger. Yeah, Randy John fished a little bit with me. John, I've known John forever. I still see John. But a it, lot of times, John would be throwing the cast net, getting mullet to take it to the charter boat, and I'd be fishing someplace, and he'd be asking me what I caught. And I was never afraid to tell John because he knew everything that I knew, so we'd just laugh about it. He'd go, well, I, I was netting mullet over here the other day, and there was some snook over there. And I'd go, well, thanks, John. I'll go try that tomorrow morning. Well, you guys would fish on the bridges, or you'd be at Tarpon Bend, or you'd be someplace in Rio Vista. And then... Us as, you know, being the next generation, much younger, 
the murmur would be, hey, George was fishing, you know, 8th Street last night. Mm. Oh, yeah, well, I saw, you know, Kantner. He was freaking fishing, you know, beach bait and tackle or whatever. Yeah. And it was always like, uh, and, you know, it wasn't, we didn't have social media like no. it was today. No. So it was all word of mouth, and you'd see another kid fish, and then he would talk about George Copeland, John Tedder, Steve Kantner, Tom Green. There was this old man named Henry that used to fish the Hendricks Isle Bridge all the time. Oh, I used to net mullet for Henry. Did you? Yeah, he would. He'd be fishing, and I'd be driving by, and I'd stop, and he goes, "I don't have any bait." And I go, "Well, here comes to school." I jump out with my cast net and there and some bait. I go, "Here you go." See, we're in fact, he- the biggest snook I ever had on in my life. I just netted him a couple mullet, and I was going to go fish this bridge that I like to fish, and he said. Well, I'll come up and watch after I fish this. And if he hadn't have, if I hadn't caught him the bait, I probably would have caught the fish. <laughs> I actually got the fish out from underneath the bridge. And if that snook wasn't 60, it wasn't a snook. Really? And I was by myself. And even trying to figure out how to do anything with him by yourself, even if you got his head out of the water. And back then, years ago, we used to use bridge gaffs. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you put a rod down and try to bridge gaff a fish or what? And uh, finally ended up uh, losing the fish before I got him. But that. Well, where, where Henry used to fish, right in the little corner pocket of Hendricks Isle Bridge, right. was my bus stop. Yep. So every morning, almost every morning, five days a week, I would sit there and chill with Henry until my bus came. And Henry would kill giant jacks and eat them. Yeah. He'd kill a big snook and eat them. It, yeah. And he liked catching sheep's head. Yeah. And um, he was one of the people that would be part of that gossip, part of that murmur. Hey, did you know John Tedder caught this off this? Yeah. You know, or did you know George was down here last night? Where so I get the little skinny from Henry, yeah. and Henry at the time had to be sixty something years old or whatever. He might have been seventy back then. Right. He was an older yeah. guy, and um, so you know, I just couldn't wait to get to the bus stop because Henry gave me the lowdown and went, you know, what, what happened? was going on, and you stand there and watch him fish, and if he caught something, you could help. <laughs> yeah, and those were the good days. Yeah. And. My dad always told me, and um, you were right in the thick of it. He said, "As if you were ever to be in sport fishing, the early '80s to the mid '90s was the time to be in it." Oh yeah, the fish in that era were just so abundant compared to what we have today, and the and the technology and the tackle and the advancement of everything. Now, do you feel? at this day and age that you were were one of the main mentors for all the people that kind of came out of here you know that's a hard thing to say Uh, i don't really have any kind of an ego and i think that i try to stay humble and more low-keyed so I probably would never say that I had anything to do with that. I think it's just all the process of people fishing, learning, and doing that these people got to the levels that they got to. If somebody really loved fishing, then they would do what you did. They'd go fish and fish and fish until they achieved the next level, the next level, and the next level. 
And like what we were talking about today, everything is changing so quickly that what was yesterday is long gone and you're looking for something new. The fish don't hold where they used to hold. So what you knew before is not any good for today. Well, being humble and everything is a really good quality. But let me assure you that you were one of the most influential people in of anybody that I've ever met in the fishing world. You're not alone, but you're definitely on the top. And there's a lot of people that feel that way. And um, I think it's important when we do content like this is for people to understand that places like TNR Tackle, people like yourself, like Tommy, like Bill Boyd, like Shorty. I mean, there's oh, so yeah, many. George Shorty Washington. Yeah. Wow, yeah. But they taught so many people, and they yeah. were the nucleus of it. Yeah. And my dad was able to learn from, oh, the, yeah. from these people. Sure. Which then, of course, taught me, and then so on and so forth. And now looking back at it, it was like it was a sport fishing university between Pompano and Miami mm-hmm. that the rest of the world was able to take advantage of. Yep. And the thing is, is like, you, myself, a lot of the people that we talked about, they dedicated their lives to the sport of fishing that they loved. And these people love it, so they gave of themselves so that others could do the same thing. You know, with your guiding, if you're not taking these people fishing, they're not fishing. They're not catching these fish. Right. They're not getting the experience. Right. And, and, you know, the guy that uh, knows how to fish that comes from Boston or whatever that's never seen a snook, tarpon, or jack, or permit, or anything, and you take him out and he catches these new species, and he goes, wow. My youngest son was telling me last night, he says, you know, I never caught a dolphin or a wallow. And I was like, really? He goes, yeah, I haven't. <laughs> and I said, boy, we got to do something about that. <laughs> Take care of that real quick. <laughs> yeah, the, um, yeah the, 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 the things that we did here in South Florida um, in the 80s, was, it was just totally, um, totally insane. And being a kid and growing up with it, I had no clue that it was going on. But my dad could put it in perspective for me. And um, I didn't know that... Uh, Joe Munson played such a, a part in your life or TNR Tackle's life. Um, not only did he have a lot of money, but he loved fishing and yeah. he loved the people that were participating in the sport. Yeah. And my father moved here from Massachusetts so he could fish year round. Right. Yeah. I remember that. You know? And me, I could just benefit from it. I was the parasite on the back of the neck. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And. Guys like Joe Munson, guys like yourself, guys like Tommy Green, you guys did things before everybody else. And you, you knew about the tackle, you invented the tackle, taught people about the tackle, how to apply it, where to go. And you guys were the first to do that. Do you realize that? Yeah, I would say that a lot of that stuff might have been the first. Uh, you know, you, you do things, it was... You talk about being the first to do something. I knew Tommy Green as a bowler before I knew Tommy Green was a fisherman. I heard those stories. And uh, Tommy and I bowled many bowling tournaments uh, 
together and one night I was talking about snook fishing and he goes, well, let's go snook fishing. And I said, well, we could go to so-and-so if we had live shrimp. He said, pulled out the key. He goes, I get the key of the store. We can go get whatever shrimp we want. And we started laughing and then we were talking and I was talking to him. He goes, yeah, you like snook? I said, oh, yeah. And he goes, you ever fish live mullet for him? And I go, yeah, you want to go fishing sometime? So he goes, yeah. So we planned on going fishing. And he shows up with nine, ten-foot rods with a uh, 3.0 with 80, 100-pound line on it. And I pulled out mine that just about matched his. And he goes, really? Really? <laughs> you use this type of stuff? And uh, then Tommy and I started fishing together a lot because we realized we were doing the same type of fishing and had learned the same things without even knowing each other. It was, it was eye-opening for Tommy, huh? Well, it was probably the same for me because I didn't really know Tommy that well, but other than bowling and uh, some of the guys that fished here, there's somebody we didn't mention, Charlie March. Charlie March was a very good snook fisherman, and uh, Charlie caught an awful lot of snook, and he was another guy with eight, nine-foot rods that fished the bridges and dead-end canals, so... There's a lot of people, uh, John Guando and his father. You probably never even heard of John Guando. John and Guando was a, a somewhat mysterical legend he, as we were kids. Well, John was a very good snook fisherman. He worked with me in the carpet business years ago, and John fished snook with me, and then he fished snook with his dad, and he was really good, good snook fisherman, and I haven't talked with him in years. I don't even know if he's still alive. But uh. It's funny, about 20 years ago, someone reached out to me that wanted to do a documentary on Guando. And they, they sent me the script. They, I mean, they, were, they, did, they, they came to Fort Lauderdale. We went to the old spots where he would fish, and we took photographs and did some film and so on and so forth. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure if the thing ever got made or not. But I learned a little bit about uh, John Guando, you know, during during that period, and I hear guys like yourself uh, talk about him. Um, I didn't realize that uh, I didn't realize that you actually fished with Tommy that much. I knew you guys were friends, but I thought it was because of the tackle business. No, Tommy and I fished together an awful lot. If you ever uh, stop by my store, I can show you uh, fishing albums that are full of pictures with Tommy and myself uh, where back in the day where you could keep four fish each we'd have eight snook that we caught and uh, not really proud of uh, those pictures anymore today but uh, it is what it was we did what we did and this was oh gosh what 40 years ago plus so. yeah the um yeah I just didn't re- I just didn't realize that. I remember being in your tackle store though going through those those books that you had you still have this big old photo album oh in yeah there? those albums are still there and tommy had the albums with the some of the same pictures now yeah. a lot of the pictures that uh, we didn't catch fish together were without but uh, a lot of times with him and i caught a lot of fish together we probably fished four or five nights a week together for i couldn't tell you how many years that's cool that is really cool the um now, Tommy, he never really, um, 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. His son never really got into fishing that much, and I know that that... No, he didn't, and that was kind of surprising because you think that he would have passed that on to him in some way. When my son was younger, he went fishing with me in the boat with Delph and the Keys, and he goes, I don't want to be out there all day. You know, you're going for an eight, nine-hour trip, and I don't want to do that. So I said, okay, well, you don't have to go, and then he's a little bit older, he goes... Can I go? <laughs> you right. know, so. And that made that made everything the difference. Right. That made your day, right? But he did get up and go fishing for the two hours in the morning from, or three hours from five to eight in the morning, a lot of times for the snook. He just wasn't ready for that yeah. offshore commitment type, yeah. type fishing. The, um, because I think that, I think that, uh, uh, I think that motivates a lot of us having a son or a daughter that, that wants to fish with you. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the whole thing. It's interesting. I know I've mentioned Ralph Delph a few times. As he would say, that's the whole point. Spending time with your son. Spending time with your daughter. That's what life is all about. These are your offspring. And I remember just before Ralph passed away, he told Christopher, he said, cherish the times that you have with your dad because you don't know how much time you're going to have. Right. And to, and to speak of that, my father is 82 now, and he suffers from Parkinson's. He's still getting around. Oh, God bless him that he is. And um, when, it, when I think about my relationship with my father, I would... What comes to mind 90% of the time is the times that we were together fishing. He took me to Venezuela mm-hmm. when I was just 10 or 11 years old. He wanted me to compete in the ILTA tournaments. He wanted me to see the bluefin tuna. He wanted me to see the tuna come across the bank in Bimini. Mm-hmm. He wanted me to see a grander. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and, and I didn't get why the motivation was there until I had my kid, and now she's 16 years old. And a couple of weeks ago, it was Martin Luther King Day, and they didn't have school. And my kid texts me, says, Dad, I don't have school Monday. Can we go fishing? And without a doubt, I would have canceled a trip. Oh, for sure. To make yeah. sure yeah. that when my kid wants to go fishing, that I can take her fishing. Definitely. And I never understood it, of course, till now. Now you do. Right. And it's a big part of the sport. Oh, Yeah. Well, there's an interesting saying that I heard when I was a kid. You can't put an old head on young shoulders. That's a good one. And it's really life's experience is what we learn. And you're not through learning no matter how old you are. I'm 74 and I don't know anything. <laughs> right. And all this, all this shit we thought we knew. Right. As you get older, you realize, man, I didn't know anything. Yeah, boy, was I dumb. <laughs> right. No, and the older I get, the dumb, the, I realize how dumb I was. <laughs> and one of, one, of the, one of the things that I know that I squandered in at, at 50, I'm 54 now, at 54 years old, is 
I had the opportunity to be friends with and to network with the best people in all of the fishing world. And I could have did so much of a better job taking advantage of that. My attitude as a teenager and going into my 20s and 30s is I had to be better than everybody else. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to be the better fisherman. I was fixated on that. And during that time, a long time went by where I wouldn't sit down with somebody like yourself and talk like this. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The only reason I would talk to Tommy Green is because he'd call me wanting to know what happened in the New River and on the Lost Souls Bridges. Right, yeah. And he, you know, he knew that I knew, so he would contact me once or twice a month just to get the skinny. Oh, yeah. So I developed that relationship, but I didn't do that. He was calling me, and then I look back at it, and I was like, what an idiot. I could have called him back a hundred times. Oh, yeah. I could have hung out with him. I could have did this. I could have did that. But I didn't know that stuff then. Yeah. And I know that I squandered, you yeah. know, so much, even though I took advantage of a lot. And the same thing, if you'd have reached out to me and said, you know, what you were doing before I knew what you were doing, I would have uh, been more than happy to tell you anything that I know. I know. And, I, and, I, and, and like I said, as I look back at it, but what all you guys have done, and I, and I can't be more thankful or grateful, is as my business grew, you supported me. Oh, yeah. We'd always send people to you whether you knew where it came from or not. And we'd tell people, well, you call this guy. You know, if you want to catch a tarpon in Fort Lauderdale, you want to catch a snook in Fort Lauderdale, you call Jeff Maggio. And I said, you might get Lunker Dog you know, or run that dog, it's still him, you know. And yeah, and that that support um, at this age, I appreciate. And I realized that I was part of something that I could have never have controlled. But because I was part of it, I can reap the benefits of it as yeah. a 50, you know, 50 year old yeah. man. And uh, when we when we spoke this morning, and I was going to come over here, you know, he says, you know, just out there trying to get, trying to make a living. Yeah. And as I look back at it, and I think to myself, well, so was my dad. Yeah. And so was Tommy. Everybody and was so trying was to make a living. And so was Kantner. And then we all just grew up just, just trying to make a living. Well, I want to tell you something real quick. Uh, a friend of mine, John Emery, that was a fishing guide in the Keys, he also ran Jay Lee Cuddy's in Miami, tackle uh, distributor for number of years him and i were going fishing and like i said he was a guide actually at the time i had somebody with me and the guy was paying john to take him and i fishing and we're driving down there and john goes look at all those poor bastards going to work and the guy <laughs> says well aren't you going to work and john said no i'm going fishing yeah so they're a little different thing and what is it that you do you go fishing, you know, you're just very fortunate that people are paying you to do what you love to do. And I was very fortunate that I had the tackle business and the tackle business supported me so that I could do the things that I wanted to do. Well, if you, if you think about what people actually are paying me for, is they're paying me for, of course, to take them fishing, but they're paying for that little piece that you might have taught me when I was 15 years old, or that little piece that Jill Dobellini taught me in yeah. Venezuela when I was 15 years yeah. old. And that's really what they're paying for. What's the result is they get a nice fish. 
but they just want a little piece of what guys like yourself gave to people. And it's like, like hunting for gold or hunting for a piece of jewelry. Oh, yeah. And when they find it, they feel it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And the other thing is people that come in my store and ask me about people to take them fishing. You know what the biggest question is? Would you spend the day with them? Would you go fishing with them? <laughs> because they want to know what you're going to be like. Right. Am I going to want to throw him overboard or am I going to have a good time? Right. right. Yeah, and this is very, very important to people. A lot of people are more concerned with what kind of time they're going to have, even more so than what kind of fish they're going to get. Yeah. I don't care if this guy's the greatest fisherman in the world. Is he personable? Right. Do I want to be on a boat with him Do all day? Do I want to spend eight hours with him? You know, and, and this is what people are looking for. Right. And as you all know, if you check with any of the people that fish with you, your reputation is so good in all those areas. I've never had anybody ever say anything that Jeff Maggio wasn't a great fisherman, a great guide, a great guy to spend the day with, nice personality. Everybody is just that you're top notch. That's awesome. And I, uh, I learned it from you guys. Not kidding. Um, and I'm not the only one. I, I I mean, there's there's, I know George Beck was a big TNR guy. Oh yeah. And uh, I watched George, you know, be a captain on the Viking for all those years. Right. And I watched him become one of the best, you know, that's ever been. Yeah. And then I think about it, I go, well, he, he learned what I learned from. Yeah. He's yeah. a real guy. Oh, definitely. Yeah. George Beck was 12 years old the first time I saw him. <laughs> tell me, tell me, how did George George caught that big snook in Costa Rica and it ended up in your well, I can shot. tell you the work? story. Yeah, no one to know. Okay, well, a bunch of the guys had gone down there commercial fishing. And George Beck, gosh, I can't think of the guy's name that was fishing with him, but I can see him. They went out, they were trying to catch a rooster fish, and they were fishing out in front of Capos, Costa Rica. And they were trolling uh, Rapala CD. I don't know, might have been the CD-19, the biggest one. And George gets a bite, and he's fighting the fish, and he's getting the fish closer to the boat, and finally they realize they had a snook. And George goes, well, just unhook him and let him go. And the guy with him goes, I ain't unhooking him and letting him go. He's coming in the boat. He says, this thing's over 45 pounds. And they pulled it in the boat, and they took it back and waited, and it was 57.12. Whoa. And what they did was they packaged it up as something totally different than what it was and sent it to Miami for the people that they were fishing for, commercial fishing for, right. and told them in Miami not to open it, that they were going to come and get it. And that's how it got here. And they came and got it, and they brought it to me at TNR Tackle. And at the time, they didn't have much money, and George goes, you know anybody that might mount this for me and not charge me? And I said, yeah. I said, the guy that just bought J.T. Reese, I think I can talk him into doing it for you. And uh, we actually talked him into doing it and that's for it. him. And uh, But what happened was I told him, I said, if you make two fish and one for George, I'll buy one to put on the wall in the tackle store. Oh, this is so, two. So the 
fish hanging in the tackle store is the biggest one is George Beck's 5712. And George's picture in Costa Rica with the next to him. Yeah, I've taken people in the shop just to show them that, you know. Yeah, well, that fish is huge. Yeah, that's been totally phenomenal. That fish and then the uh, the guy that had Carl's bait and tackle when he had that world record or whatever it was in that freezer. The tarpon, the 242? <laughs> yeah. I can remember going there, oh, opening yeah. up the freezer to take a look at it. Yeah. Those are the two... Uh, those are the two fish that I, I spoke of probably most. The guy from Carl's had kept that one in the freezer, and then the George Beck snook that was up in your in your place. Yeah, now that fish you had in New River a number of years ago that I watched on the video that you got out of the boat and you lost, I kind of wonder how big that was because that fish really looked big in that video. The one with Bill Dance? I don't remember. I know you had it on a spinning rod. You were fighting the fish, and oh, okay, you fought yeah. it for a long time. And then you actually got out and were standing in waist-deep water because I think you wanted to get the fish to you where you could beach it or and the video. something happened that the hook came out or something. Right, right. Now, the strain of tarpon, um, the strain of tarpon that used to be in the New River was, it was... Some of the best in the world. Oh, yeah. It was unbelievable. And back up the river, Marina Bay, before they did what they did to it, and then back where Pipe Welders is, we used to catch tons of fish back there. Well, you remember my dad had the little uh, shed at Billfish Marina right across from Pipe Welders. Mm -hmm. And back then, 595 wasn't there. Right. It was 84. It was 84. On the back, that pond was still on the other side that... uh, I guess FPNL uses or whatever. Yeah, my and, hard drives. Right, hard drives. And they would come out there, and I still take people fishing back there today. When the weather's really bad, um, or some real old clients they'll want to go back there to see, you know, to see it again. And there's still fish up there. But I have the video, we have the documentation. The strain of snooks and the strain of tarpon that wanted to be in the New River had to be one of the biggest and best in the entire world. Oh, God, it was unbelievable years ago. Now, that bridge there by Pipe Welders, under 84, I caught tons and tons of snook there. Yeah. No, I fished there when I was a kid with Tommy. Yeah. I fished there with Jill Dobellini. <laughs> you know, showing the Venezuelans the, the little tarpon fishery that we had back there. It was, uh, those were great days. Now, before we wrap up everything... The guys that you catered to over the years at TNR Tackle, I mean, it went from the richest people in the world. Definitely, yeah. All the way to the guy that had to save his money to get on the pier. Oh, absolutely. And the thing that we always tried to do was we tried to treat everybody as equal as we could. Right. Even today, uh, the younger kid that works for us, Michael, he helps anybody tie a rig on for you show you how to do a high low rig how to fish the baits which baits going to stay on the hook better for you so we cater to the guy that's going to spend five dollars we pay cater to the guy that's going to come in and outfit his boat for eighty thousand right and try to treat them both as equal as we can uh you know nobody's any better than anybody else and no matter how much money you have does not make you a better person 
Or a better fisherman. Or a better fisherman, for sure. Right. It just means you can pay this captain and this mate and this and that to go do this, and you can buy this $15 million sport fish, and you can get your Gulfstream jet to take you to Costa Rica or to uh, St. Thomas or wherever, and the other guy doesn't have the money. <laughs> but it doesn't make you a better person, and it also doesn't make you a happier person. That I learned. That I learned. Um, some of my clients that had the most money and could do whatever they wanted were some of the most unhappy people. And some of the people that I grew up with that didn't have two dimes to rub together enjoyed life till its fullest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, my buddy Timmy would shoot me if I didn't ask you the question. And this is going to be a little bit, this is very Fort Lauderdale. Tim O'Connor, he's been going to your tackle shop since he could walk. Mm -hmm. Went to Cardinal Gibbons High School, lives about 10 blocks from you. Okay. And I told him I was coming over here to do the uh, interview. And uh, he says, ask, ask, ask him a question for me. And I hit on the pier earlier. So the pier wasn't a big draw for the tackle store. But was La Spada Subs a bigger draw <laughs> than the pier was? <laughs> You know, I would say that uh, I couldn't tell you how many people came in the tackle store and said, I got to go get my La Spada sub, <laughs> or how many people came in with a bag of La Spada subs and sat down in the back of TNR Tackle and ate their sub. <laughs> so uh, one of the kids that grew up, uh, he moved to Saipan, and he's back in town again. He's older than you are. I think kid, but he was a kid, 12 years old, when he first started coming in. And boy, right to Las Patas, you got to go to Las Patas. You got to get that Las Patas sub. So Las Patas sub has been a landmark since it originally opened. And boy, did everybody. Las Patas and TNR. If somebody wanted to know how to get to TNR, I'd say it's right by Las Patas. Right. <laughs> if somebody wanted to know how to go to Las Patas, I'd say it's right, right by, by TNR. TNR. Now they moved right across the street from us before they were to the side of us. So it's it's interesting. Yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> now, recently, um, you did an interview with uh, Andy Mill for the Millhouse podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't wait to hear it. That comes out on the 30th. Awesome. Yeah, I saw an advertisement for it. That's the only reason I knew. And um, I can't wait to hear it. But going through one interview and then having the opportunity to do a second interview, what do you want Andy's audience and my audience to know from George Copeland? I know you're concerned about the environment and the waterways. Oh, definitely. But what 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 so far didn't you get in this interview or Andy's that you'd like to say? Just absolutely that uh, all of us real guys love fishing. Right. And we have, like I said earlier, really dedicated our lives to fishing and helping other people in their fishing needs and taking them fishing. And that's why the water problem is uh, so utmost important is because if we keep doing what we're doing we're not going to have any fish right. if there's no bait fish in Fort Lauderdale why would there be any predators right, right. and this like uh, I told Jeff we were talking about uh, they closed uh, from a little bit south of 17th Street to a little bit north of uh, 
Lauderdale Marina and 15th Street by the boat ramp. What do these people think? That there's no tidal flow? What doesn't come in and go out? Every six hours it goes in or goes out. And this tide is flowing. And where there's a problem, it's not just there. It goes all over Fort Lauderdale. And this is something they all, for some reason, don't think happens. Oh, we just closed this area. Well, (laughs) that stuff that's in that area is only in that area so long, and it's moving somewhere else. The more that comes out, the more it moves. You know, it doesn't just come out of 15th Street and go out in the ocean. And even if it did, how bad's our water in the ocean where people are swimming? Right. You know, I wonder if we've even tested Fort Lauderdale Beach recently, because with all the sewerage spills we've had, our beach water might not be fit for swimming. Well, 78% of the 10 places that we do test every single month fail. And I went to a meeting the other night in Rio Vista, and I got to listen to Nancy Glassman, who's the authority on the environment for the city of Fort Lauderdale, and it's a fucking joke. Mm -hmm. And if people listen to this podcast or this interview... And they just understand that that's a priority and that's an issue that Florida has to take on. Then you did your job and I well, did mine. They definitely need to hear it and they definitely need to get involved in it. And if anybody takes anything from this, I would say take the water problem because it's absolutely real. And the more sewage spills we have, the worse it's going to become. Right. And If they don't ever start to do anything about it, nothing will be accomplished. It's just going to continue to get worse and worse. And pretty soon you go, well, there used to be tarpon in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, there used to be snook. I remember when I caught Jack Ravel here, but I haven't seen a Jack here in years. What I think my grandkids' story is going to be, and I hate to say it, but I think this is going to be the story. But people are going to say, you know, there used to be guys like George Copeland that made a living teaching people and showing people how to fish. And it'll be a thought in their mind and not a hobby or a sport anymore. I think it's sad. But if we don't change directions, that's, right, that's the direction. where it's going. Right. That is absolutely where it's going. It's like right now there's lots of different uh, tackle stores in Broward County, and a lot of them are doing really well. But 20 years from now, right. how many tackle stores will we need? Well, Even the offshore fishing, the uh, sailfish, kingfish, wahoo. That's declined tremendously since I was a kid. We always, uh, I always watch your thing on the mullet run. Right. And when I was a kid, we could be on the old Anglin's fishing pier, which was a wooden fishing pier when the mullet would run. I was probably eh, 12 to 14 years old. And as far as you could see to the north was black from the beach to the end of the pier. It just solid mullet as far as you could see and they were just pouring through they'd pour through the pier for six seven hours they'd just be coming through mullet after mullet after mullet and then it gets a little less each and every year and even this year i went to uh, commercial boulevard bridge every morning in september and october and with 
look off a commercial boulevard bridge to see what was there. Five mornings I seen finger mullet. And one morning I actually did net three or four big mullet. But that was throwing at three or four individual big mullet. Right. And that bridge a year ago was wall-to-wall mullet. Finger mullet, big mullet. There was bust all over the place. And this year I think I saw three or four bust. Right. Now I watched... I watched the end of the mullet run, I'm pretty sure, three years ago, when they had the huge red tide on the west coast, Mm -hmm. and the mullet came through the east coast, and they tried to come through, and they were dying in the seaweed. We would net them, and we'd put them in our live well, and then they would die. They'd fall over. Right, they would die. And if that was happening to the big fish that we were netting to use for bait, what was happening to all the little small fish? They were and doing the, the same larvae, thing. Yeah. Even worse. Yeah. And since then, I mean, yeah, we watched the mullet run decline, 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 but we watched it die that year. Mm-hmm. And maybe with the, with, the, with the will of God and oh, Mother yeah. Nature, it, it can make a comeback. Hopefully it does. I also have noticed that uh, the commercial mullet fishermen that net the mullet as they're coming down they'll come out and run as far south as they can that's where they start netting so they're trying not to even let any mullet get down to us right and if you and if you pay attention to the mullet fishermen places that you would never see them they now infiltrate Mm -hmm. for instance dead end canals yep you'll see the commercial fishermen go to a dead end canal and the few mullets that are coming through they'll take them all because it's that's all there is to get. Right, yeah. And I don't blame them necessarily. Yeah, because they're making their living doing that, yeah. Right, and maybe they didn't know what happened here 20 years ago or 30 years ago mm-hmm. or 10 years ago. So, you know, I don't blame them specifically, but the fact of the matter is, is it, that's the reality. going on. That's the reality of it. Right. Well, I'm glad you were compelled uh, to come on the podcast. I truly believe that... Uh, you were the real guy. You're the guy that I wanted people to hear from. Well, I hope they listen to the problem with our waterways because this is our future. Whether we have fishing in the future or not depends on what we do with the waterways that we have. Even the beaches, the reefs, everything, it all contributes to fishing. And those of us that love fishing want to see fishing continue. Like I said, I'm 74 years old. Uh, whatever God's willing to give me, I'm thankful to him each and every day. I'm thankful for each and every heartbeat and each and every breath. But I'm thankful for what I've seen fishing. Unfortunately, what I've seen fishing and what Jeff has seen fishing, a lot of people will never see because it may never, ever happen again you saw the tunas at cat swimming by in 30 feet of water and that's unbelievable and now if you go over there i don't even know if that still even occurs anymore or if if it did what people would even notice it well most people wouldn't (laughs) even know because nobody's over there in a tower looking for them anymore so everything has changed I used Ralph Delph as an example. He used to go up to New England and fish for the giant tunas. 
And Ralph caught uh, three tuners on stand-up over a 1,000 pounds, and one he caught, he was in the boat by himself. He didn't even have a mate. So when you use somebody's name, sometimes they also need to hear what kind of achievements, not just that uh, he guided these people to the master angler or had all these records. This man could fish, just like Jeff. If you, Jeff goes fishing by himself, I watched the video where you had the 40-pound snook. <laughs> there wasn't anybody in the boat with you. Right. <laughs> you don't need help. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, through a lot of practice, you know, you can, you can get that way. Um, George... It was really a pleasure um, getting to spend some time with you in the 40 years that I've known you. Yeah, and I really enjoyed it, and I certainly hope that we get together a little more often and uh, maybe do another one sometime. I don't... Well, what, when we spoke on the phone a while back, you were talking about booking me for a tarpon trip. Well, and my... I would like to offer doing a tarpon trip with you and your son anytime you guys would like well i know he would love to do that and if we do that it's not going to be on you because that's how you make your living like i said i fished with uh, many guides and i've always paid the guide that i fished with i didn't jump on their boat because it was a freebie well this but, is a, uh, i i know me. that he would like to go fishing with you very much because he's watched your <laughs> videos as I have so well that's great and I'm glad you guys watch them together and I'm really glad that you came on the real guy podcast because this is why we made it oh, I appreciate it and I thank you and I hope the listeners uh, will uh, appreciate what we were talking about and the importance of this problem we have with our waterways run that dog definitely run that dog <laughs> <laughs>